You're listening to InfoTrack. To learn more about our guests or listen to past shows, visit InfoTrack online at InfoTrackRadio.com. Once again, here's Chris Whitting. Overdoses claimed the lives of an estimated 100,000 Americans last year. What can be done to reduce that deadly number? InfoTrack's Gina Tedesco is here with an addiction expert. Gina? Thanks, Chris. Is America looking at addiction issues in the most helpful ways? Joining us now is Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction physician and bioethicist. He's an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University, and he's out with the book The Urge, Our History of Addiction. First off, let's talk about how you challenge the common notions of addiction, such as there's no, quote, good drug versus bad drug. What do you mean by that? I say the good drug, bad drug division is overemphasized because throughout history, people have sought to divide up people by good drugs and bad drugs, and it's dangerous, ultimately. Certain types of drugs are associated with the supposedly wrong sort of users, and then that, of course, means that the notions of drugs and the notion of drug use can be used as a weapon, but what people often miss is that This also blinds us to the harms of these supposedly good drugs. That certainly happened through the 70s, 80s, and 1990s as we were so focused on crack cocaine, not just as a social phenomenon, but also as a scientific model for addiction that we totally missed the boat on the opioid overdose crisis in certain ways. And you argue that we should stop calling addiction a disease. Why is that? Well, I would modify that slightly because I think this is a complicated point. I worry that calling addiction a disease is misleading, but to get sucked into whether it is or isn't is almost getting lost in the weeds. The reason I think it's misleading is because it's a double-edged sword. I've seen actually very helpful ways of addiction being presented as a disease throughout history and also in my own personal life. I've seen it force open the doors of hospitals, provide funding for addiction treatment. And for many people, the notion of disease allows for personal care and compassion. But on the other hand, I've also seen harms of diseases. And throughout history, there are examples where the word disease leads to dehumanization and even fatalism. It's been used to enhance stigma and create distance. And that label also has been used as a weapon. So in the end, I think it's just confusing. It muddies the waters too much to call addiction a disease. And in order to really get our arms around the phenomenon, we have to stop with the labels and look deeper for more care and nuance. What do we really mean by this term? And that's interesting. You mentioned the stigma issue. Rightly or wrongly, doesn't calling addiction a disease actually reduce the stigma? That's a complicated point. And we do have research on this issue. So if you mean that diminishing stigma means reducing blame, then yes, there's some evidence that calling addiction a disease reduces blame. But calling addiction a disease, according to the research, also suggests that it enhances social distance. People don't want to be around someone if it's called a disease versus a disorder. And it can also lead to a pessimistic notion that people are permanently broken or that they can't change. And I think that specific message of permanence or brokenness is a really insidious one. And I've seen that actually cause problems in patients who think, oh, because I have addiction, that means I'm fated to use in this way. And and what's the point, really? We're visiting with Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction physician and author of The Urge, Our History of Addiction. He also has firsthand experience after his own addiction crisis nearly cost him everything. 
Doctor, you say that an estimated 20 million Americans with substance abuse problems go without treatment and only 5% think they need it. For people listening here who know someone in the 5%, what can they do? Uh, That's such a tough question, and I know people struggle with it so much when a loved one is clearly suffering and yet unwilling to get help, unwilling to take changes. And I dealt with it myself in my own family with both of my parents being alcoholics. And I'm happy to say that we have more recent research, even just in the past 10, 20 years, that points to A, the diversity of this issue, that there's no one-size-fits-all answer, but B, that the answer is not always to cut them off because there are cases where it does make sense with help, with the advice of trusted professionals, or at least a trusted mutual help meeting, you make that tough decision to allow the, what we call the natural consequences of use continue. But this is such a complicated topic. What I'm inclined to say is just one important point. It doesn't have to be about total withdrawal. There are ways of showing up and helping someone without, quote unquote, enabling their use. And that's a great springboard for my next question, because you write that abstinence is not necessarily the best treatment goal for everyone with a drug and alcohol problem. So we're talking about just getting it down to a manageable level? Well, it depends. Drug problems are not necessarily addiction, and the use of drugs is not necessarily a drug problem or addiction. And we've mixed up those different concepts over time. Now, people have debated over what addiction is for centuries, if not millennia. So that's a complicated topic. But when we step back and we look at the whole range of substance use problems, there are certainly people for whom a moderation goal does seem to work or even they learn to use drugs less harmfully. Now, I think we have to be very, very careful about this notion because it doesn't mean people should be cavalier. It doesn't mean that moderation works for everyone. In fact, for many people, myself included, I consider abstinence is the right way. For some people, it seems you really need to take abstinence as a goal. But when we think that every single person with substance use problems should recover in the same way, I think that gets a little rigid and a little misguided because it can slot people into a one-size-fits-all system that doesn't work for everyone. And you've used the term harm reduction. So how does that play into this idea? Harm reduction is one of these very polarizing words, and people have all sorts of different explanations for it. My starting point is harm reduction means taking the person's well-being as your yardstick. It means working for any sort of positive change, including just minimizing harms. And we can take a harm reduction approach or even philosophy into treatment. A harm reduction approach to treatment means rather than insisting that the person change in the way I think they should change as the treatment provider, What if I met them where they were and said, what works for you? What are you looking to change? Where can we start? Sometimes without a focus on necessarily changing their substance use, even if their substance use is really, really problematic in that moment. And that can sometimes be a bridge over to a more enduring change in their use. Sometimes you have to help people with, say, their housing or help people with other struggles in their life before they're ready to accept help even in, say, an abstinence-oriented approach. 
And finally, you start with a broad definition of recovery, that is, stable improvements in functioning and purpose in life. And then using that, you say most people with substance problems will recover, and most will do it without much medical intervention. Is that an opinion, or is there data? There's absolutely data, and I'm thinking in particular of the Harvard group, the Recovery Research Institute, as well as a lot of other recovery research Recovery research is a new field within the broader scope of addiction research. For a long time, we've been focused on the problems and the harms, and those things are really important to study. But there's a whole universe of people out there who are in recovery, who are working on flourishing after they stop using, who are working to minimize the risk of relapse for themselves and for others. And It's only been really a microsecond in comparison to the broader field of psychology research on drugs and drug problems. We have very good evidence now emerging that people recover in a lot of different ways and that really hope is the abiding message that so many people do get better. Some really need medical help. Some really need intensive help, but some people don't. Hmm, Very interesting. Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Gina. For InfoTrack, I'm Gina Tedesco. You're listening to InfoTrack, a production of Syndication Networks of Chicago.